So one of my favorite movies growing up was Remember the Titans. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, but um, I literally got it back when we had VHS tapes, right? Um, I literally bought the VHS of it and watched it every day of summer break one summer. I probably still, I may have not watched the movie altogether as a whole in probably five, ten years, but I probably still could quote the movie to you word by word. It just has stuck after watching it probably 90 times that summer. But in the movie, it's a, it's, a, it's a movie about race, right? It's a movie about when a black school and a white school come together and they have to learn not only to go to school together, but specifically it's about the football team trying to learn to play together. But once they kind of actually learn to play together, there's this tragic accident, right? One of the captains of the team gets in a car accident right after a playoff game and becomes paralyzed, And he can't play in the championship game or anything like that. Now, the point of the movie is to show the relationships that exist between him and those of a different race and how they've grown to love each other in the midst of this. But there's still this climax of this life-altering disability now that he has. And actually, the movie begins and ends in the fact that that young man died ten years later and they're at his funeral. And that's kind of the beginning and ending of the movie is they're at the funeral together. Just like he was, from that point on, unable to play in the game, unable to do certain things in his life, we're going to see a man this morning that was also lame or paralyzed for 38 years. But there was an even worse condition for him. He was not only paralyzed physically, but he was spiritually paralyzed by his unbelief. You see, because what we've just seen in the last couple weeks, in the last chapter or so, is we saw the Samaritans respond to Jesus with belief. The Samaritan woman, then the Samaritans as a whole group. And then last week we saw someone with weak or no faith of the official turn right into faith. He was, his, his faith was awokened by a word from Jesus. But now we find out that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem where the Jewish people are. So we know from history in John's Gospel that the Jewish people, specifically in Jerusalem, have had an unbelief problem. We're going to see three characters in the passage. We see Jesus, obviously. We see the paralyzed man. And then we see the Jewish people, specifically probably some Jewish leaders. And so what John is giving to us in this passage is not just what happens physically to this paralyzed man, but what's going on spiritually in his heart and in his life. And we really get this this man and the Jewish people put up as an illustration for us of what unbelief looks like. Even in the midst of Jesus healing this man's physical disability, there's still paralyzing effects of his unbelief that we'll see play out. We see four of them. We'll get into that, but let's read it first. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as I said, we're going to see four paralyzing effects of unbelief in this, from the man and the Jews kind of illustrating each one of them for us. The first one is the paralyzing effect of the man and the Jews were unable to recognize grace. Because of their unbelief, they end up missing the grace that Jesus is giving to them. Right? John sets up this whole passage, right? verses 1 through 3. He sets it all up for us. We should start to expect what's going to happen with this man already. Right? There was a feast of the Jews. Verse 1, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Right? Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. He tells us Jesus is back in Jerusalem with the Jewish people. All we've seen so far of the Jewish people is unbelief. So our expectation should be that we're probably going to see something similar here. Right? So far we've seen that Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. They were upset about it. Jesus said, right, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And they get upset with him because they're like, it took us years to build this. How in the, how in the world are you going to do it in three days? And that's pretty much the extent of what we've seen in Jerusalem so far. But we've also seen the Jews in Galilee, right? Where Jesus rebuked them for saying that you must see signs in order to believe. So unbelief has been an ongoing problem for the Jewish people. But now Jesus enters a space with a multitude of invalids. But we should be anticipating some sort of doubt from them. And that's exactly what happens. First, he comes to the man. Verse 5, which, by the way, if you haven't noticed, there's no verse 4 in probably most of your Bibles, right? 
verse 4 is actually probably footnoted at the bottom if you have footnotes, but we'll get to it a little bit later. But the verse 4 was probably added by a scribe later after the gospel is already written to give understanding to what was going on in the context. So it actually probably wasn't part of John's original writing, so it's not included in there. It's not in the earliest of manuscripts we have of John's gospel. So just so you're aware, that's missing and that's why. But we'll get to what, what it tells us later, just because it probably gives us a little bit of insight. But Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This man has been there for 38 years. And Jesus, the Son of God, comes into this space with a multitude, right? They're all over the place of people blind, lame, and paralyzed. And he comes to this one man and looks at him and not only speaks to him, but asks him, offers him, right? Do you want to be healed? Jesus isn't offering to put the man in the pool. Right? That's not what Jesus is offering here. Jesus is offering a different type of restoration, a restoration that isn't based upon superstition of a pool, but a restoration that Jesus himself is the only one who can give. But the man misses it, doesn't he? Just like we've seen blindness over and over again of Jesus offers to people, Jesus questions to people. They just don't get it. This guy doesn't get it either. He misses it. He's unable to recognize the grace that Jesus is offering him. He's offering him restoration. But yet, he thinks Jesus is merely talking about the pool. But beyond that, Jesus goes on to heal the man. And then look at how the man responds to being healed. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now most of us read that and are like, "That's, That's the good part, right? He was healed. But notice, what did the man not do? There was no thanks to Jesus. There was no recognition of who Jesus was in healing him, right? There's another story similar to this in Luke 17. We're not going to go there, but most of you probably know the story. Jesus heals ten lepers. All ten of them go away. One comes back and thanks Jesus. And Jesus says, I thought I healed ten. Where are the other nine at? This man is showing that he missed the grace. Jesus has now physically healed him of what he's had for 38 years, and there's no thanksgiving. He just gets up and walks away. He misses it. And then jump down to where the, Jesus interacts with him again, right? The man goes, has his talk with the Jewish people, comes back to the temple, and Jesus finds him there. Verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now Jesus is not only offering physical restoration that he's already given him, he's offering full forgiveness, full restoration. And what's the man do? Verse 15, 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He turned him in. Imagine the type of unbelief that someone must have. He misses the offer. He misses it at the healing. And he misses it when he sees Jesus again in the temple and full forgiveness is offered to him. He's unable to recognize grace. He just can't see it because of his unbelief. And then one more example. Let's look at the Jewish people, for example, here. They're also unable to recognize grace. They see the man who has just been healed after 38 years, and what's their response to him? Verse 12. Who said to you that you can walk and take up your bed? This man has just been healed after 38 years, and they say, who told you you're allowed to walk around with your bed in your hand? They've missed it. They miss the grace that this man has been healed. Instead, they're worried about who told the man that he's allowed to carry his bed. Who, who is it that's breaking our Sabbath rules? Their unbelief has made them unable, all of them, to recognize grace. I want you to imagine that you run a red light that has one of those cameras on it, right, so they can catch you anyway, even if there's not a cop nearby. And I imagine you get fined $100, but the ticket never got sent to you. Now it comes your day in court, and the judge handling it says, we forgive you and release you from the fine. Are you thankful for that grace shown? You're not. Why? Because you didn't know you needed it in the first place. Right? You were blinded to the fact that you needed forgiven of that fine because the fine was never sent to you. You don't even know you got the ticket. So you're blinded to it. But how much, how much more blind, how much Harder is this man's heart, is the Jewish people's heart, that they actually have seen him healed after 38 years, and they still miss it. They've actually seen him healed after 38 years, and they still, they still don't recognize the grace. What about you? Are you able to recognize grace in your own life? Because we live in a world right now that says, our God, this is their claim, right? I'm not saying this about us. We live in a world that says this about our God. He's too loving to send anyone to hell. But really what it is is a declaration of what? Of people saying, I'm not guilty enough to go to hell, right? I'm, I, I haven't sinned enough. But what does that show? that they're unable to recognize grace. Because if one recognizes the depths of how sinful we are towards our God, you see grace everywhere. You see grace in the fact that that breath you just took, you shouldn't have been allowed to take. From those simple graces all the way to the fact that Christ dies on a cross for you. Everything is grace. 
So do you tend to recognize grace in your own life? Because grace transforms our mind to see grace even in the most difficult parts of life. Think about COVID, for example. Is there grace in that? Is God showing grace in the midst of keeping everybody at home with their own families rather than being busy with activities? Or I think of even when my own kids disobey me. Is there grace in that? I think there is. Because even in the midst of my kids' disobedience, what God, if I have the grace mindset, the spiritual mindset to see it, what God is revealing to me is there's a priority, there's an idol on their heart. And God's giving me insight to what that idol is. And that's why they're disobeying. God's given me insight to their disobedience that it's because they have given their worship to something that's not obedience, something that's not to me, something that's not obedience to God. But it's not just the inability to recognize grace. Unbelief also limits our trust or limits our faith. Unbelief paralyzes us in that we end up only trusting in that which does not last. It limits our trust to vain hopes. When Jesus asks the man if he wants to be healed, what's the man's response? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You get what's going on here, right? There's the expectation that the first one to get into the pool gets healed. And that's really what the missing verse 4 says. There was this belief at the time that an angel stirred up the waters every so often. And the first person in after the waters were stirred got healed. But the likely explanation is that this water was fed by a spring somewhere. And so when that that spring sent a current through it, it would start to stir and move a little bit. And also, there was probably minerals from that spring which gave the water a red tint to it. So they thought this was some sort of magical water, but really it was just spring-fed. So when Jesus offers this guy a chance to be healed, this guy's response is, I trust that water. His unbelief has limited his faith to only that which is vain. The things that are in this world. He can't trust in Jesus. He's limited to only trust in emptiness. Some sort of magic water that's sitting there. And the same goes for the Jewish people in the story. Look at what they're trusting in. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And then jump to verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They're upset with the healed man walking. They're upset with Jesus healing the man because it all took place on the Sabbath. 
Now, we have to understand the context of the Sabbath here. The Sabbath, it was forbidden to do your job on the Sabbath. That's what was forbidden on the Sabbath. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily forbidden that you couldn't move. It was, you weren't allowed to do your job. But they had created extra rules as the Jewish leaders. So when they actually say, you're breaking the Sabbath, we're upset about what's going on on the Sabbath... Jesus healing a man wasn't breaking the original Sabbath from God. The man walking wasn't breaking the original Sabbath from God. It was breaking their rules added on top of the Sabbath. The man wasn't laboring. He was walking home or to the temple or wherever he was going to go. They weren't breaking God's law, but they were breaking the Jewish ruler's law. So their trust, right, their faith is limited. They can't trust in the Jesus that just healed this man. Instead, they're trusting in their own man-made rules that they've made up. Something that's truly empty. Something where there was no hope for them. Because in their own laws, they were never going to be saved. In fact, even if they were remaining faithful to only God's law in the Old Testament, that was not ever meant to save people. God's law in the Old Testament offered salvation for nobody. It was a temporary thing given in order to show people that none of you can fulfill the law, but all of you will break it. The point of the law was to show that you've broken the law and you need someone to save you from it. The law is always meant to point people towards Jesus from the Old Testament towards the new. So even if these weren't man-made laws, but God's law, they still were missing it because Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But their unbelief limits them to only trust that which is vain, that which is empty, that which is useless. It's easy for us to see this with our children, isn't it? That kids have certain things they trust to keep them safe. For some of them, it's having the nightlight on. For some, it's dad checking the closet for monsters before they go to bed. Or maybe it's a certain stuffed animal they have to keep a hold of. But we know as adults that those things don't keep them safe, right? In the end, nothing about those things is specifically safe other than if they get up and walk, they have lights so they can see where they're walking, but... Nothing is going to keep them safe of those things. They're putting them in empty things, but to them it feels right at the time. That vanity simply shifts as we get older. We often trade one vanity like a nightlight for another, like having a large bank account or having a certain level at our job. So what vanities are you tempted to trust instead of Jesus? What do you think will make your life more satisfying? What do you think will heal you? It might not be magic water anymore. But we've often traded it for something else. Do you think that our greatest hope as Christians is a politician? Or that certain laws in America get passed? Or do you think you'll be healed simply by having positive thoughts about yourself. 
that if you just can get your self-esteem high enough, you'll be saved. You'll be good to go. Believing in Christ changes our hearts to have hope in the only person, the only one that can truly make us well. And much of what we trust is driven by what we fear, which is our next paralyzing effect of unbelief. Living in unbelief confines us to live out of fear rather than faith. Look at the man after he has been healed. The Jews come to him and they question him on why he's walking, right? Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now this man has a decision to make. He has just been healed by Jesus and the Jewish people come to him and say, you're breaking the law. You're not allowed to walk and hold your bed on the Sabbath. And the man has a decision on how he's going to respond to what Jesus has just done and what these Jewish people are asking him. We actually see a story similar to this later in the Gospel of John. And what we see that man do is he stands up to the Jewish leaders and says, Jesus is the one who healed me, right? Like, it's not about trying to get Jesus in trouble. It's about him standing up and defending what Jesus has done. But look at this guy in verse 11. He responds out of fear, showing he doesn't really have faith. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. What does he do? He simply shifts the blame. Right? I'm not breaking the law. He told me to do it. Instead of being overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus healing him, he says, he's the one who's wrong. He's the one who told me to do this. Does it sound familiar at all? It reminds me of Genesis 3. When God comes to Adam after they've sinned, and what does Adam say? It's that woman you gave me. Right? From day one, this is what sin has done. Sin has driven us by fear to the point that we're willing to shift the blame to other people. It's just that this guy now blames Jesus. He's unwilling, actually, another symptom of unbelief, we're not going to get into all that much today, but it's that we're unwilling to look at ourselves. This man was unwilling to say, I'm a sinner who's just been healed, and I didn't deserve the healing, but I still have been healed. He wasn't willing to look at the hardness of his own heart. Instead, he was looking at someone else to put the blame on. And then we continue to Jesus coming to the healed man again in the temple this time and offers him the full restoration. Verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple, said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The fear Jesus is promoting to him is you should fear God. You should fear eternal judgment. That's what your fear should be. And how does the man respond, though? Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. They didn't have the identity yet. And this man goes and turns to Jesus. And he fears the Jewish people more than Jesus. 
more than God, more than eternal judgment. And the Jews are driven by the same motivation, by fear. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you, you don't persecute someone. You don't seek to kill someone unless you feel threatened by that person. The Jews feel threatened by what Jesus is doing. They, they fear the loss of their way of life. They fear the claims that Jesus is making. They fear the actions of what Jesus is doing because his ministry was tearing down all that they had put their hope in. They feared the loss of their normal way of life, their own man-made rules that they had set up. So they say, we must try to eliminate the one who's doing this. I don't know how many have seen the movie The Hunger Games. Or the trilogy of movies, The Hunger Games, right? In those movies, the society that it tells the story about is driven, everything's driven by fear. Everything in those movies, right? There's a major hub of the political leaders, the capital, they call it, and it dominates all of society. It tells everybody how you're going to live, what job you're going to have, how much money you can have, when you're going to get your food, everything, where... Where you live, every aspect of your life, there's different districts, and they determine who's in each district, what the job of each district is, when those districts get their food, all of it. Everything in those people's lives is driven by fear. And there's a moment in the movies, obviously, where the people begin to turn on the government, and they begin to kind of revolt against it. And the president of this whole society has a quote And he's telling, as this revolt's starting, he he tells them this. He says, the only thing more powerful than fear is hope. So squelch the hope. Because that's what the revolt is doing, is creating hope in people that they can now turn away from the fear and actually have hope for a new way of life. And the president says, get rid of the hope we have to control by fear. That's unbelief, people. That is truly how the enemy wants life to work for us. Get rid of the hope, drive you by fear. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that can give people freedom from the fear that we all are confined to as sinners. So what about you? What fears in your life do you find yourself most confined to? Because everyone wrestles with fear. Every single one of us in here wrestles with fear in our life. It just shows up in a thousand different ways. But think about it. When, when parents choose to opt children out of coming to church in order that they might be involved in an activity, it's because they fear their kids missing out on something. There's a fear there. Or when you refuse to forgive someone who's hurt you in life, it's because you're afraid that they're going to hurt you again. Or if you see people spouting doomsday about our politics right now, it's because there's a fear 
of either the government or of society in general of where people are headed. So many of our decisions each and every day have an element of fear to them. But I think this is part of the reason why the entire Old Testament talks about the people's relationship to God the Father as fear the Lord. As you look at Him, the rest of your fears begin to fade. So consider the depths of your fears this morning and trust in Jesus. Not because you want relief from your fears, but because you truly believe He's the only one worthy of your trust, the only one worthy of your worship, and naturally your other fears begin to be released. Because when we become overwhelmed with fear, it makes us only trust one person, ourselves, which is the last, the last paralyzing effect of unbelief, is it restricts the authority to self. Look at the paralyzed man. Who was the authority in all the decisions that he made? He was. He determined he was going to get better by somehow making his way into the magic water for 38 years. He decided it was better to stay on good terms with the Jews rather than trust Jesus. Every decision this guy made was for the benefit of himself. He was restricted by his unbelief. His authority, his goal, his purpose was him. And then look at the Jews, right? Verse 16, we just went over it, but let's go through it again. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What did Jesus do on the Sabbath? He healed somebody. But who was the authority? They were. He needed to answer to them, they thought. And then going even a step further, verses 17 and 18... But Jesus answered them, My Father, authority, is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, My Father is working, so I have to work. He's my authority. And then the Jews interpret this rightly, in that Jesus is saying, He's working and I'm working, making himself equal with the Father. So in, in one sense, Jesus is saying, I'm the authority. The Father is working. He's showing me what he's doing. And so I authoritatively with him and do, am doing all of this that he's showing me and telling me to do. But the Jews want themselves to be the authority. They see what Jesus is saying here. They understand him rightly, but they want to kill him instead of trust his authority. It doesn't fit with what they like. They want themselves at the center. And this has been the case since the beginning of sin. What's the promise that the serpent makes? God doesn't want you to eat that because it will make you like him, you get to become the authority of good and evil now if you eat. The promise is you yourself get to be the authority. But that's not how we were created to live. 
God created us from day one in Genesis 1 to live under his authority. Only when we live in step with his desires, his pleasures, his truth, is when we as human beings begin to flourish the way we were meant to. As I've spent a few years working in youth ministry with teenagers, you can imagine I've had to deal with the authority issue before. You ever heard the phrase of, you can't tell me what to do? Or, I'll do what I want? These are claims of authority, aren't they? And maybe these claims aren't even straightforward verbally that you've heard them, but you've, you've probably seen them at least in actions. And it's not just teenagers, this is all of us, right? They're just a good example to pick on for this morning. Just as God created teenagers to have parents... God created us to live under his authority. So consider your own life at the moment and contemplate where do you want control. It doesn't have to come down to you verbally saying that you think you know better than God does. Most of you will probably never say that. But all of us have moments when we function in life as if we do think we know better than God does. When you respond with harshness or anger to your spouse, to your child, or someone else, you're taking control for yourself in that moment and not responding as God has called you to respond. Probably because you're unable to recognize grace in that moment. Or when you think... You have to financially be there instead of being here. You're setting your own standard. You're saying in order for me to have safety in life, I'm not saying it's wrong to work towards having finances saved up or being good stewards with our finances. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if your hope is placed in a future date rather than trusting where God has put you today, then you're saying I have my own standard of what I'm going to trust in. There's a reason why God says tomorrow has enough worry for itself, right? Trust him today. Or if coming to church or any church requires that that church must have certain programs and meet certain preferences of yours, that's simply saying, I have my own standard of what church needs to be. If the church doesn't fit my standard, my authority of what I think it should be, then it's useless to me. Trusting in Christ actually frees you from your own control because you begin to realize that God does it better. So this morning we see the paralyzing effects of unbelief. It makes us unable to see grace. It limits our trust into that which is vain. It confines us to fear, and it makes ourselves the authority. This morning, realize that the man and the Jews we see in the story represent you and me. Not necessarily that we're unbelievers, but that unbelief holds us back from all that Jesus wants us to see. That even in the midst of the moments where we struggle with unbelief, Jesus still is the one who died and raised for you to be freed from that unbelief, 
for you to be redeemed from it. So today, Jesus offers you healing. Not necessarily physical healing, it might be that, but Jesus is offering you a better restoration than that. He's offering you restoration from your unbelief. He's given you a chance to see grace, to trust Him rather than the world, to live by faith rather than fear, and to live under His authority rather than your own. There's a story out of Mark chapter 9. We're not going to get into it, but the guy's phrase, I think, is applicable for us this morning. As he's longing for Jesus to act, he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. May that be our a cry of our hearts this morning, that we all recognize, even as believers in Jesus, we struggle at moments to believe. Not that we struggle to believe who Jesus is necessarily, but we functionally throughout our life tend to want to take the authority back to ourselves, or we we are driven by fear rather than faith, or we miss the grace that he's showing us. So may this morning, may our hearts cry out, and may this be the heart cry until we see Jesus. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray this morning.